coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. So there's all these little subtle nuances of European nymphing that gets a little hyper-technical, but uh, you can you can play with depths with, you know, with even light beads. I mean, if you imagine, it, you know, um, you, if you drop a 2.5 bead in, into the water and there's no leader attached to it, it goes to the bottom really fast. You know, it's like that thing sank. So if you think of that, of trying to like not have any tension on it as it's at the initial part of the drift, uh, just enough so you can feel a touch, but not so much that you're affecting the fall of the flies. You can get really light flies really deep. That was Brett Bishop with some Euro to start your day. Sun Valley Cornfed Caddis and a gold medal winner today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Meal Bar. With 700 calories, it easily fits into your pocket, backpack, or fly swing. Range Meal Bars are made in Vancouver, Washington, using only the highest quality gluten-free ingredients. And they are the most convenient and compact way to get out the door and on the river. You can support this podcast and Range Meal Bar right now by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash range, R-A-N-G-E. Range Meal Bars, a legitimate meal in your pocket. We are also sponsored by Stonefly Nets, putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. It's Ethan's hope that you create lasting memories every time you're on the water. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y, to get started right now. We're just wrapping up the uh, the big Steelhead School giveaway, and we're looking to fill a few more spots for this trip. If you want to uh, grab your spot, head over to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway right now and check it out. Brett Bishop is here, clean off a gold medal at the last world championship. Brett talks about how the team sets up their Euro rigs while in competition. We find out who the massive mentor was that uh, Brett had early on as a kid. A huge, huge name. And we also dig into some on the dry dropper. You know I love working on my short game, so let's get it rolling. Without further ado, here we go. Brett Bishop from Silver Creek Outfitters. How's it going, Brett? It's going great. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, making a little time uh, in your day to talk about what you guys have going. We've got some exciting news. I, you know, we're going to dig into the the Team USA. I've we've had some updates over the years from Lance and Devin and lots of the folks that have been on, you know, that are on the team. And uh, but I think this might be some maybe the most exciting news ever. I think so. We're going to talk about that today. Um, but before we jump into that and a little bit about your guiding and, and kind of some of the stuff you do in Idaho, um, talk about how you first got into fly fishing. Okay, uh, it was when I was nine years old. I remember my parents at the time bought a Winston glass blank for me and uh, said, you know, you're going to make your own rod and you're going to come on these fishing trips with us and. And, uh, so <laughs> I built the rod, uh, I learned the knots, I learned how to tie flies and, you know, went to casting classes. So they, they wanted my brother and I to be self-sufficient anglers and also have a rod that I had built myself that I would respect and, and treat, you know, uh, carefully and not break. And, uh, so we'd go, uh, in the, in the summertime, we'd go fishing cause they were, let me back up just a little bit. They were both in the ski industry. So 
uh, in the summers, they were basically off. So we'd travel around Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. I was living in California at the time. And just spend three months living in a VW bus with, with brown rice and dried fruit and, and trout fishing and camping. Nice. And I did that for many, many years. And, and uh, you know, ended up finally living in, in Sun Valley. Uh, which is where Silver Creek is. And one, that was one of the places that we would go. They, they were really into Spring Creeks. They were disciples of like the Swisher Richards selective trout and and really matching the hatch. And, and everywhere we went, we would go and fish a Spring Creek. In fact, when we would go to Idaho before I now live there, live here, uh, I didn't even know the Big Wood existed. You know, it's a freestone stream. I just knew about Silver Creek. And that was that was my exposure to to fly fishing at a very young age. And then I, I, I kind of went away from it a little bit when I was in high school, came back to it in college and discovered I had this, uh, this knowledge. I knew how to tie flies, tie, tie knots. And I, I knew how to read water and, and how to catch selective trout and, and really got back into it, uh, kind of later on. And after college, of course, now I'm, I've been guiding for years. And so, I mean, there, there, I could go on and on, but that's basically how it all started. Well, it's interesting because, you know, your story, it sounds like, I mean, it was your, you, both of your parents were like totally into fly fishing. Yeah. Uh, I would say more so Jim than, than my mom, Catherine, uh, Jim was just a fanatic about it and, and it was just something we did. We, you know, it was, we just eat, slept and drank fly fishing and, and tied flies. And yeah, he was really, really, really into it. You know, when we go to the river, uh, he did spend some time teaching my brother and I, but mainly he would go from sun up to sundown, and we really wouldn't see him. And I think that was part of the goal was to make us self sufficient. So oh, wow. we were on the on the railroad ranch on on Henry's Fork back in the in the eighties. You know, we'd walk in and and he'd go fish, and and we'd go fish, and then at the end of the day, we'd we'd reconnect. Um, so I was really kind of raised on on the riverbank, you know, in the summertime, just fishing. Wow. It sounds a little like uh, like the river runs through it a little bit, right? The, the, the three of them, bit, yeah. the three of them drop in, and they they all, I guess they kind of disappear and do their thing. Uh, so <laughs> so who right. trained? I mean, how did you learn the fly fishing? How did you learn the actual casting and all that? Who taught you that? Well, you know, as I said, we we would uh, go to Mel Krieger's classes and um, and learn how to cast. Um, I mean, we were, we, by the time he was leaving us, we were pretty self-sufficient. He wasn't worried about us, like, you know, wading out in the water and, and drowning, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, um, you know, we could, we could do our own thing. We had all our own gear and, and, and we could fish at our own pace at that point. There's no pressure. You could, you could catch a fish. You could lay on the bank and skip rocks if you wanted to, but it was, it was a, you know, I, looking back on it, it is kind of a, an idyllic fly fishing upbringing and, and, uh, and the waters that I got exposed to at a very young age was not just the Henry's Fork, like Nelson's, Armstrong's, Depew's around Livingston and some of the other little secret, maybe not so secret, Spring Creeks around Bozeman, the Spring Creeks in the park, um, and of course, uh, you know, famous, world famous Silver Creek as well. So I got to see those rivers really in their, in their heyday, in their prime, which was kind of cool. Gotcha. Well, what's it like now when you look, you know, 80s back then versus now, Silver Creek, all these areas, are they, do you remember exactly, is it quite a bit different now? It is different. You know, having grown up on a river like Silver Creek, I've seen it evolve. And, and it it used to be, I, I hate to say this, it used to be a much better fishery. And, and it's still it's still a good fishery. And people who are exposed to it now, uh, you know, are still going to have a great fishing experience. But the hatches were more prolific. There was more, there were more fish. There was more water. You know, we're, we're struggling in the West with, with, with water, as you know. Yeah, I think. just the drought. 
yeah, it's, it's been really, really tough on a lot of the rivers around the West. So, uh, and, and Silver Creek has gone through a lot of changes I mean, it's a, it's an agricultural Valley. It, it gets filled with silt and it, you know, there've been cattle on it over in the past and, um, and it's, and there's a lot of people who are really trying to take care of it. The nature conservancy and the, and the private owners all around it are really, you know, cognizant that this is a, such a special place, but the, the reality is it just isn't what it used to be in the eighties. And it used to be such a, an amazing, and it still is. I mean, I, I don't want to be a, be a downer, but it's just, it's not what it used to be. And, and a, a lot of that's because there's just not as much water. Yeah. You know, I haven't been back to fish, um, on the Henry's Fork in a long time, I, I, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I went back and it even seemed, you know, I, of course I had these, these visions of it from a, from a kid of being this idyllic fishery with fish rising everywhere. And I remember wandering around, tr- like struggling to find uh, a fish or two that I could cast to last time I was there. Still very beautiful. Um, and I did get to go back and fish the Spring Creeks in Livingston and they were still a lot of fun, but they've, you know, they've gone through floods, they've gone through all kinds of changes and, um, yeah, everything changes. <laughs> yeah, it's changed a lot. I mean, obviously, yeah, the water, mm-hmm. the the drought, uh, everything's affecting. You know, it's and that's why, like you said, the, having those groups there is important. So on Silver Creek, so you guide currently. Where, where are you spending your time uh, when you're guiding there? You know, I, I guide for Silver Creek Outfitters, and I spend a lot of my time kind of bouncing around. We have such a variety of waters there, and it's. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of choices. So I can, you can fish freestones like the, like the salmon or the big wood. You can go over and fish a tailwater below Mackie Reservoir. Um, you can fish uh, Silver Creek. There's lots of great reservoirs. So it's a nice variety of fishing. And I, I probably spend most of my time somewhere between Silver Creek, the Big Lost, and the Big Wood. You know, pretty equally split. Gotcha. How did you go from? So when did the Team USA? When did that start? So that seems like a pretty big, maybe a big change or a big, uh, a big thing for you. Yeah, it was a 2005 and a friend of mine, Pete Erickson, who I think you may have had yep. on the show before, he was involved early and, and got onto the team and, um, through his work with, uh, I think he was in the great outdoor games and then, and he knew the, uh, Jack Dennis and, and Jay Buckner who were in, in Jackson and, and also, uh, Jeff Courier. And so he, he got into that group and got onto the team early, right around probably 2003, I think is when he got on the team, but they had this plan to develop a kind of regional and national championship. I mean, there's, there's a lot of history that kind of leads up to this moment when I get involved in the team, you know, the team USA had struggled for years in the late eighties and the nineties and in 97, they thought, well, and this is kind of going back uh, to when when uh, Jack Dennis and, and Jay Buckner and some of the other guys, Walter Ungerman was involved. They said, hey, let's bring the world championships to the United States. And this was 1997 because we're going over to Europe and we're getting our butts kicked. Hmm. And they did. They, they set up the championship. It was in Jackson. And, and as the story goes, and it's kind of become a myth now because some, some of it might not be entirely perfectly <laughs> true, but uh, they, the Euros came over and kicked our butts again. Uh-huh. And I don't think it took exactly last place, but it was pretty close to last place on nice. home waters. Which on was our home water. Kind of a, yeah, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a moment where I think the people who were running Team USA kind of took a look at themselves and said, what do we really need to do to make this team viable at the, on an international level. And that's when they came up with the plan to do a national championships. So now this is when I get involved, I was invited out to bend Oregon, uh, 
and and just to kind of put this in perspective, I was I was there with uh, Lance Egan was just getting involved in the team. He was invited out. George Daniel was invited out. Uh, there was a guy named Jim Hickey who spent some time on the team. Ryan Barnes was there. All guys who who done a little bit of traveling to World Championships, but. Um, Probably the two most recognizable names are Lance and George's names, but they were there just like I was there. We were getting kind of it was a tryout. It was a, it was the first, well maybe the second kind of tryout or maybe the third. Who knows? Again, as, as I said, it's it's becoming mythological, um, and it was it was good. I I, did, I fished well enough that I made what they called the development team at that stage, and I think that year they picked uh, a couple other guys. They didn't pick George and they didn't pick Lance to travel and they went on to, uh, I can't remember which championship it was that year. It might've been Slovakia or something like that. But, and nevertheless, uh, that led into the first ever national championship. And so they had set up a development team. I was on a team of like 15 other guys, you know, Lance and George are on the team at this point. Uh, Devin's not quite involved yet. This is, I think this predates even Devin, although Devin may have been, boy, I'd have to ask him if he was at that first nationals. He might not have been in there until the second nationals, but nevertheless, uh, they had the first ever national championships. It was 2006 in Boulder, Colorado, and it was a pretty big deal. They, they did a great production. The guys who organized it did great, and it was a full-on national championship. The goal here being that if we can get guys competing and get experience competing, then maybe we can send a team that is viable over to compete right. over, overseas. To, to, to be fair, though, there, from about 2003 on when Pete made the team and Jeff Curry was on the team, the team did improve. You know, Jeff Curry was the first ever uh, guy from the United States to medal. He got a third, I think, in Spain in 2003. Um, but they were still struggling to really be consistent. And so they, that's where they started this program. I went to the Nationals, to make a long story short, or a short story long. <laughs> I went to Nationals and got first place. I won. Hmm. Uh, so I was the first ever national champ, and my friend who was on the, the master's team with me, uh, Mike Sexton, was second place. So he and I both made the team to Portugal for 2006, and I think George was on that team, Lance was on that team, Jeff Courier was on that team, Pete Erickson was on that team, and if I'm missing somebody, I, I don't <laughs> think I am, but I hope I'm not. But anyway, so that kind of gives a little history, because a lot of those guys, like Mike, oh, Mike Sexton was on the team, oh, Mike yeah. and I. And, um, um, and Pete and Jeff were all competing together just at the Masters. So it was kind of like getting the, getting the band back together again oh, right. for Italy. And, you know, and, and, throw, and throw Lauren in there. And Lauren and, uh, and has a lot of history with Team USA, too. And I've competed with Lauren in, in the America Cup or America's Cup. I want to get that right. It's not the sailing event. It was well, the right. competition that was in Vail, Colorado. But, uh, yeah, so – that, that's really kind of how I got me involved in the team. My friend Pete got me involved, and then I, I went and I had some early success with nationals, and then, boom, I'm off to a world championship, went to Portugal, and what an eye-opening event that was hmm. uh, to, to go overseas and, and fish in Portugal, do incredibly tough fishing. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. How is the fishing in Portugal or other places in Europe different uh, from here? Well, um, Good question. In Portugal, in 2006, we struggled during practice. And we just to, to put it a little context, when we would go over to a championship, like we're going to Spain here in about a week, um, we go over, we spend about a week, maybe longer, sometimes a little bit less, just checking out the water that is practice water, fishing on the like water. You can't fish the competition water. And in Portugal, 
we didn't catch any fish on the practice water. We were, so when you're not catching fish, you're not gathering intel. It's like, well, what worked today? Absolutely nothing. All right. So that was, what do we, what do we do about when we go fish this river? I have no idea. <laughs> so when we go into the competition, we have nothing to go on. That's really tough. Uh, and that, that made it to Portugal kind of a tough, like introduction to the world of, of European fly fishing. It turned out that the competition water had fish in it and they were tough and spooky and the water was low and you know we we struggled but we ended up i think in 10th place and um i think george had a great finish at the, in portugal i think he was top 10 might have been fifth or sixth if i recall but we still uh we we, we struggled and it was it was eye-opening so you're going back to your question to answer it how is the fishing different well it's you know there can be some fantastic fishing in europe and, and i've really enjoy the experiences that I've been able to have with the team. And, but the fishing is different in, in that I think we get kind of used to rivers that are full of trout and we also, uh, you know, get, get a little spoiled by that. And it's not always the case when you're fishing the European waters, there's not always a nice equitable distribution of fish throughout the river. And they're not just tons of fish that are going to reset once somebody has gone through and fished it. Uh, so it can be really challenging and, and, you know, ever since I started competition fishing, I get really excited even just catching an eight-inch fish. Size doesn't really matter mm -hmm. to me. As long as that fish measures and counts, that's a success. And, mm -hmm. and you know, sometimes getting those small fish into the net is not as easy as you think. And we just let them kind of flip off the line. So it, it kind of changes your mindset when you become a comp comp uh, competitive angler. But the um, the reality is I, th I think our fish fishing is is very good we've got great diversity of fishing and it just kind of depends on which country you go to and each country has its it seems like it has its gems and it has these little hidden secrets and right. really cool it's like in italy where we just were in july we're catching these beautiful marble trout and i've never caught marble trout before but they're they're a fish that's are a trout that is you know unique to the, anything that flows into the uh adriatic sea and uh, uh, so that was just really a cool experience to catch marbles and, and marble brown hybrids and, and have that have that experience. So um, I like fishing in Europe. I love it. Yeah. And so you really probably love it now because you, you picked up, uh, talk about that Italy trip. You guys got a gold medal, right? We did. We did. We got a team gold and I got the individual gold. To qualify that even further for your listeners, because if, if, I'm, I'm uh, splitting hairs here a little bit. There's there's really a master's team, which is what this was. This was the master's competition. The master's are 50 and over. And then there's the what they call the senior team, which is the kind of the regular group of guys, anyone who's 18 and over. And you can be as old as, as you want on the senior team. And it's you know guys and girls. It's, it's everybody. And then there's a youth team. Now, the youth team has had, had some great success. Um, so it's not the first time an American team has ever gotten a gold. The, the youth had great success in the 2000s. They even had, a, 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 I think, a couple of double gold experiences in, in their uh, time at, when the youth team was doing really well. And they still are doing pretty well. Um, but for us as, as adult anglers and having our, our journey, having gone together as a team, you know, myself, Jeff, Pete, Lauren, and Mike, as many times as we competed together and, and been to these competitions, we know how hard it is to finish on the top of the podium. And, and it was just, it was, it was really special, especially doing it with this group of guys and doing it in Italy and the Italy, the Italian team made a surge and they tried to, you know, they tried to take it away from us at the end and we held them off. And, hmm. and there's so many things that have to happen to make that actually 
go in our favor that and it went in our favor this time and it just was it was really uh, kind of a special moment you know and and i think part of what made it really special was um one of the the uh the people who who we haven't really talked about uh jerry arnold who's really been the the backbone of the team in terms of of financial support and 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 making you know making all our dreams come true you know he was there with us and 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 uh, partook in it and, and is he's a he's a big part of the team and and it was really, it was just really special for for him and for us, and to to do it with him, it was great. Nice. So Jerry Arnold is a name I haven't heard before. It sounds like he is a person that's kind of behind the scenes, uh, helping run things. You know, he's he's the team manager, and he's been the team manager since I went to New Zealand in two thousand eight. He's been involved in the team, and and he really is the reason that we get to to go to these places and and not necessarily have to worry about. Um, the financial side of it and just focus on the fishing side of it. So really, since we've been working with Jerry and, you know, I, I think I've been trying to express that, you know, that the quest to get us to a gold in Italy, I'm really standing on the shoulders of a lot of people. You, know, you go back all the way to these guys who, who came up with the concept of, uh, of the regionals and the national championships, looking at, you know, Jay Buckner and Jack Dennis and the, that crew. And then, you know, that, then when, with Jerry coming in and, um, it just, it's taken a lot to get us to the, to the level where we're competent enough anglers that we can compete at the world level. And now I feel like we're really competing and we're right there. And I, you know, the, what Italy, I think proved is that it's all this hard work has paid off. Yeah. It's like, we've, we made it guys, you know, it's, this isn't just about, you know, me getting a gold and this, these, five guys getting a gold. This is about everything it took to get to this point, you know, starting way back in the eighties till now, it's just like, wow, here we did it. And you know, this gold is for, for all those people. That's really cool for everybody. It, no, it's right. And you mentioned the, uh, the masters. So you have the masters 15 older, yeah. you have the, the adults, which is, which is essentially, well, and what is youth? So youth, where does that end? Youth ends at 18. Yeah, eighteen. Uh, yeah. So adult is eighteen to up to fifty, and that includes you'll have women's and men's. Right. Yeah. Right. And you can go over fifty. Like I could be on the adult team if I, if I wanted to be. Oh, you can go over fifty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be you can be as old on the on the adult team. In fact, there's there are some people who have competed in both worlds, but technically within a given year, you're not allowed to do both. Okay. And um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. That's what I was wondering. So I was gonna, I was gonna say, what would it be like if you had the uh, the over fifty? You know, take that team right now versus the the uh, the adults. Who would win that? Oh boy, there's that question. That's a loaded question. <laughs> does that come up? Does that come up a lot? <laughs> no, but I, well, you're not the first person to ask. But yeah, uh, I have a lot of faith in this particular group of guys, and you know, we've competed um, in some form or another at national championships against the same guys who are on the current world team for the most part. We've got some really hot youth guys coming up right now that I haven't really competed against that much. And we've been competitive with them. You know, we, you know, the very, uh, the second, uh, nationals in 2008, which was basically comprised of myself and Pete and, um, and Mike Sexton was on that team and, uh, Josh Stevens, and then we had a, a couple of the guys, um, Walter Ungerman and, and Carter Borden were on it as well. But, you know, we, we ended up getting the gold that year. And the, the other team was, you know, George and Lance and, and Devin. They got silver. 
pretty sure that was, I can't remember who else was on their team. That was a long time ago. But what I guess my point is, is back in, back in our prime, we could compete against those guys. Now we've come a long way since then. And the learning curve has been really intense. And, um, if we were to compete today, that same group of guys, I think these guys would probably uh, outpace us just in terms of they're, they're more they're more physically able. But you know the nice thing about fly fishing is you don't have to be fast, right? You can you can kind of be slow and methodical and mm-hmm. and a lot of, of uh, you know uh, older fishermen can be very effective. Exactly. So this is my way of trying to skirt the answer. I don't. Know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, that's good. I think I'm sure everybody. I think that the, yeah. the guys that are going to Spain right now. Um, are very capable of proving themselves to be competitive against the rest of the world. Uh, and I know any one of those guys, I have complete faith in them. They could, each one of those guys could be a world champ. I mean, they're just, they're really solid anglers, you know, and what, what it really comes down to is how well we work together as a team. And I think that's the one thing that the, this master's team had is we've got a great group of anglers, but we also had great team chemistry and we had a great guide and, you know, and, and when things are just kind of rolling and, and working, they were they were kind of working. I mean, not to say that there wasn't stress and, and people, you know, Pete, like, tore some cartilage. And, oh, wow. And I think Lauren was got a little touch of something during the during it. And, uh, I mean, we're, we're definitely we're, – we were struggling and battling and, and doing the best we could to get through it. And, and each guy has their own story, what got us to the finish line. And, and, and that's really what inspires me is just listening to these – you know, how much effort we put into this. And I know these guys going to Spain, we've got a great team, you know, from, from Michael Bradley, Pat Weiss, Devin Olson, Lance Egan, Cody Bergdorf, Jack Arnault. These guys are the cream of the crop when it gotcha. comes to competitive anglers in the United States right now. And we're going to Spain for the adult competition, and and we're gonna we're gonna see how these guys do. And I think that they're ready. You know, it's been since 2019, thanks to COVID, we haven't been to a competition since Tasmania. Uh, they did do Finland, but Finland was canceled, and then they had it, and then the only teams that went were all European teams. So it was a very small world championship. In gotcha. fact, it's more of like a European championship than a yep. world championship. But. Uh, this is the, this is the world coming back together again and competing in Spain, and it's going to be really tough. And you know, just and I think these guys are going to fight through it. And 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 you know, that's right. Because Spain isn't Spain known as kind of one of the the good teams out there. Spain is one of the best teams in the country going right. Yeah, I mean, like historically, people look to the French or the Czechs. Uh, you know, the, the the Italians have had their moments. The English have had their moments. And but the the French and the Czechs are are really top teams but lately in the last few years spain has been fantastic and, and has been putting out a, just amazing teams and we have a, a great mentor and guide who's going to help us in spain so so you actually have do you have a guide on when you're actually in competition you have a guide that is there guiding you absolutely and i would i would recommend that to anybody who's listening is that when you go someplace new get a guide and you know the best anglers in the world get a guide and the reason we do is because we don't have a lot of time to, you know, monkey around trying to find the water that we need to fish. So the guide knows the competition waters. A good guide is going to probably be a competitor themselves. Most of the good guides are, and they're also going to have some things to to share. They're going to be they're going to have some inside knowledge. They're going to have that inside like this is what's working. This is what you need to do. These are the techniques you need to use. And uh, so it's it's something that that we. Uh, we really, really look for getting the best guide possible. That's awesome. Who can, who can prepare us as quickly as possible. We, you only have so many days to thin slice the river. You know, we're going to spend maybe at most 
one day per venue. And then, then, we're, then we're going into a world championship to compete on that river. And a venue is, the, is like a different river. Gotcha. So you mentioned techniques. I wanted to talk about that uh, mm-hmm. here in a bit. And so you've got, you know, the technique, the Euro nymphing, right, is always the thing that everybody talks about, Euro nymphing. But yeah. you guys do a little bit of other, right? You do the dry dropper. There's other yep. things you do. Yep. Um, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Maybe talk about the, let's start with the competition there. So how much, you know, I think I asked this question to Devin a while back, you know, how what percentage of time is, is Euro versus, you know, dry dropper versus dry versus streamers? Is it kind of still the 80, 20 sort of thing? That's a good question. And uh, I'll start with Spain. I think in Spain, we're probably going to be really heavy on dry fly, single Mm. dry. And why not dry dropper? Because like scaring them or something like that? Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's how spooky and how low the water is. I think you're going to want to just use the single dry. Uh, And sometimes the nymph, just even the little tiny little splash of a nymph can be enough to spook a fish. and, and also, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm thinking that it's going to be a lot, a lot, a lot of dry fly there. That's, that's every, every indication I have from the intel we're taking into to the, what the water looks like. Depends on your beat. I mean, even, a, even in a given river, you know, if you get a certain water type, you're going to be spending more time doing a different technique than, than somebody who might just be, you know, one beat above you. And just to explain a beat is the body of water that you get that's kind of like a random draw. Like if you're, to, if you're playing, you know, five-card stud, everybody on the team draws a hand of five, and you don't know what you're going to get. And you don't know until the day you're on the river. And, then, and that's why it's so important to ha- have all these different techniques up your, up your sleeve because you get to the river, you have to quickly assess and determine what techniques are going to be most uh, useful in that body of water. So hopefully, you know, with the, with the, the day we spent on the water and the intel we've had and looking at the different beats, we'll have an idea what techniques those are. So it's not going to be like a surprise, um, like, oh, I need uh, I should have brought my, my streamer rod today. Why didn't I think of that? And I was like, no, it, we know that there might be water that requires or might be not requires, but be well suited for some stream fishing. Why not have a, you know, a, a sinking line and, and some, uh, some streamers. So just being ready for that. So I, I, I don't necessarily, um, think we can always put a percentage on it, but you're right. The, the Euro nymph gets most of the press. It's because it's something that's kind of new and it's, it's, you know, and, and Devin and Lance have done such a great job of, of, popularizing it and making it accessible to people because it was such a mystery for so long. You know, it's a crazy, you know, even how it became Euro nymphing in the first place is a, is kind of a interesting story. It's really just a marketing thing, really just to simplify it for, uh, for the market. Today's episode is sponsored by Fairflies, who was founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions for flight time materials and products. They've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized people, both in the U S and abroad. Their 5D brushes make fly tying fast and enjoyable for all skill levels. Fairflies has replaced craft fur with their own fly fur, a product made by fly tires for fly tires. And, uh, and we recently had an episode on where one of the fly tires was talking about, was talking about the fly fur and how killer this stuff is, how durable it is, how easy it is to tie with um, a bunch of uh, a bunch of accolades for fly fur. You got to check this stuff out. They're also running the show over at Wasatch Custom Angley Tools with over 50 tools. They have they have one classic tool for everything you need. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash fairflies, F-A-I-R-F-L-I-E-S. Okay, let's get back to the show. 
So over in Europe, do they call it Euro nipping? No. Well, you know, it's funny. I was on a, uh, the bus um, in Italy, and um, the gentleman from the Netherlands turns around and shows me his uh, his camera. Or not? His, yeah, it's his camera with a video on it, and it's uh, it's it's tactical fly fishing. It's <laughs> it's Devin Lance's video. It's like, yeah, you watch this. I was like, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like okay, so you know um, the Euro nymphing, you know the the Euros probably the Czechs call it Czech nymphing, the Polish call it Polish nymphing, the Spanish oh, okay. Spanish nymphing. Yeah. I mean, it, and and really Euro nymphing is just when when Team USA was bringing it back to the states, there there was this need to like simplify for the audience. Uh, it's getting too complex. Why don't we just call it Euro nymphing? It was really I think a Jack Dennis thing. He was the one who came out with the first oh, video was. This, that actually was called Euro nymphing. Yeah, and it was it was probably at a bar somewhere with with Jack and Pete and Jeff sitting around going, "What should we call this? This is too confusing." But uh, it is, yeah, that's the thing that most people think about. But what it just keeps evolving, though, you know, and I think it's even evolved to the point where calling it Euronymphing seems to be pigeonholing it a little bit. It's, it's so many other things uh, than just the techniques that, that most people think of, you know, it's just, it's not like just short line, just dredging the bottom. It's, it's a lot of other stuff going on, but, um, I, I think I lost touch with your original question. there. <laughs> no, I think it's good. I mean, I was just kind of going down the road, like, okay, you got Euro, you got dry dropper. I want to dig into some of the techniques, but I think it's an interesting conversation because like you said, yeah. you got like the mono rig, you know, the, whatever naming, right. You got George with his dynamic nymphing. Everybody's got their, and really it's just, it's nymphing. I mean, right. It's just a different type of nymphing and, right. and your nymphing, would you say your style of nymphing, the team USA now is pretty similar to what it was say, you know, 10 years ago? Oh no, no, it's much different. Yeah, it's just because the technology's gotten better, and you know the rods are better. Uh, our understanding of what we're really trying to achieve when we're doing these very specialized drifts is better. The lines are much lighter. Um, it, depending on it, just again, it depends on application. But uh, for the most part, things have just gotten, uh, I think, easier and more efficient and and and. It is the, the the ultra ultra thin leader stuff that we're doing now, uh, you know, like using a you know a level line of anywhere from from four x down to to six x the entire leader. That takes a lot of time to to perfect that casting. Uh, it's tricky, you know, especially when you're casting super small beads, two point five to two point oh. It it can be hard to cast. It can be super frustrating. So it is. I think it, it helps. Like you know the people who are maybe just getting into it to start with kind of and, and go through the evolution to get to the ultralight stuff that is currently kind of what we're most people are using a little thicker leaders stuff that just turns over a little easier you don't have to get super techy with it that's the big thing yeah it, it's changed a lot in just in 10 years and, and i i'm really curious to see what happens in the next 10 you know and, and i think what what really keeps me going in this this sport is it, it's not the quest for gold. Of course, it's really the thirst for learning. And it's, it's, I mean, obviously I want to get a gold and I, and we achieve that with the masters and I want to achieve that with the adult team. But at the end of the day, you know, if you don't get the gold, it's like, wow, I just, I learned some really cool stuff. I got to see some cool country and, and I, I had these new techniques and these new flies and, and I got, I can work on my own angling. I can help my clients work on their angling. Do you bring that back to, in your guiding in the summer here, do your clients, or are they like, okay, let's tell me what's going on with the Euro nymphing. Is that what they want to do? Sure. Yeah. And then they've, they've seen me, a lot of my clients I've guided for years and years and years, they've kind of seen me go through the evolution with it as well. And I'd take them through the evolution. It's like, this is kind of what's working for me now. And, and 
and they're all getting to be pretty good Euro nymphers, and 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 not just Euro nymphers. It's, it improves every aspect of your game. As I said, in, in, in Spain, we're going to be doing a ton of dry fly fishing, so we're playing with different leader builds and and different casting techniques and to how to handle really super spooky fish, and uh, you know, and yeah. So it's it just keeps changing. Right. Well, let's dig into a little bit on the gear here because everybody always loves the gear stuff. So if we're talking, let's just start with Euro, and then we'll swing into dry dropper. Um, so just break that down really quick. What's your setup look like? Take it back to either, you know, over in Europe or what you would be doing here. What does it look like? Yeah. Yeah, there's many components here. So uh, I'll start with uh, the rod. I, I like uh, a 10 and a half foot rod. And uh, that's my rod of choice right now. It's an Echo Shadow X. Uh, it's really light in hand. It doesn't have it. You know, it doesn't feel like the tip is heavy at all. It's, um, you know, it seems like it's just the right balance of, you know, of everything super nice and light not too heavy it, it's actually a 10 and a half three is the one that i fished the shadow x 10 and a half three um and then you know i it, the reel is kind of insignificant just something to kind of help balance it out uh line wise i do like to use a, a euro line i like the thinner line for um euro nymphing and, and to have a, a connection between my euro line and the uh, leader that's like almost non-existent so it doesn't catch on the guides when that does come out my, my leaders, because I'm a competitive angler, are always going to be right around twice the length of my rod. So if I'm 10 and a half, I'm at 21 feet. And um, sometimes I'm just under, but typically I don't go over. Can anyone go over? Absolutely. Go over if you want to. Uh, the, but it's nice to, to be able to have a little bit of the, the Euro line, uh, the fly line in your hand, because it's easier to handle than the super fine uh, leader. Uh, I've been really playing with level leaders a lot. And I you know when I'm guiding, I typically use something that's a little stiffer and like a three X, um, level li uh, line. Uh, I like the, the, the Cortland makes some great product, uh, for their stuff. And, uh, so does Umpqua, but, uh, the, the one I've been using is like a white Cortland kind of mono line. It's just a straight, like either eight pound or, and, and that works really well for guiding. It, it, it takes the Scafaris wax really nicely which is a colored wax. So if you want to add a little cider to it, I prefer to not have very many knots. So I just run the straight white level line right to a, a tippet ring and then just attach my, my fluorocarbon tippet directly to that. And the, the length of the fluorocarbon kind of varies. And if I need a little bit of color in the line, I'll, I, I add the, the scafaris wax. Uh, familiar with that. It looks like right. a chapstick and gets in all these different colors. And, and it's kind of like, it, it does float a little bit, but it just, and, and it's comp legal at this point, which is cool. Uh, so because we're not supposed to technically add anything like an indicator or, or weight to our line. That's, there's some specific wording on that, but it doesn't say anything about floatants or, or color like that. And then, um, you know, tippet wise, it just depends on the river. You know, I'm, I'm going to run whatever's appropriate for the moment from anywhere from, you know, 4x down to to 7x depending on the flies and the fish I'm I'm going for in the in the river. But that's a pretty standard rig yeah. for me. Now, if, if when I get into competition, I usually lighten that up a little bit and go with a um, a, a little lighter level line. Um, and I honestly, the the stuff I'm using right now it's some it's some uh, French stuff. I don't I can't even pronounce it. So, uh, but it, it's it's very fine. And it takes a long time to, to kind of get used to not having it wrap around the tip, which is a real problem if you're uh, if you've ever experienced light lines before. You know what I'm talking about. But uh, the lighter just gives you the advantage of of sensitivity. It allows you to throw lighter nymphs. It also allows you to have uh, you know much more kind of distance between you and where the flies are in the water without the gravity pulling down the line and trying to always have it coming directly hanging off the tip. 
Um, and then that rig will uh, easily transfer over with just one knot change because I typically do a two-fly rig and I, I fish my upper fly off a dropper. I can pop an upper fly off and tie on a dry fly, and now I'm dry dropper. And the advantage of Euro dry dropper, if, if, if your listeners haven't experienced it yet, I mean, it's really incredible because you can, you can just, you, you never have to mend. You just, you can, you can put your fly in just very precise places and, and, uh, uh, and you can dance your dry fly up and down a little bit and make it look like a, a caddis or whatever, if it's trying to, you know, tease a fish up to it. So it gives you really nice control of your, uh, of your flies. And then, you know, if I get into a situation where I need to switch back to double nymph, one knot later, I'm back double nymph. Gotcha. So you put your dropper, so the dropper or the dry dropper and the dry mm-hmm. fly is going onto your dropper. I put the dropper, I'll attach my, my first piece of tippet to my, my terminal tippet using a surgeon's knot. And I'll use the tag of a surgeon's knot to attach my upper fly. And then the point fly is just at the end. Yeah. So then that, whatever that tag is, and it's going to be anywhere from like four to yeah. five inches, that, that little knot tag. I can use it like, you know, three or four times without getting it so short that I can't tie another fly that I have to then go ahead and re-rig the bottom piece again to, to reset the, the dropper tag. But I, I really find that, you know, the, the fewer knots you have to change, the more efficient you can be. And really, you know, the key to, to competition, it's not necessarily the key to, to enjoying yourself on the water, but the key to competition is using your time efficiently. And, you know, a one-knot change to completely change a technique, not changing rods, you know, it's, it's, that's like, that's huge. Right. Cause you guys aren't changing. Uh, is it just one rod when you're out there in competition? Just, well, you know, some, some guys like to carry two. I'm, I'm not quite like efficient enough to, to get to that point. I just kind of leave my, my spare rods on the bank at, at still. But for the most part, I'll, I'll, I kind of look at the river situation. I might set up three or four rods thinking like, these are the techniques I'm going to use. But when I'm just doing specific dry dropper, if it's broken pocket water, or if it's a little bit deeper water and I need to get my fly from being suspended down another layer, that's where that's where the switching back and forth to two right. to dry dropper is super gotcha. effective. You know, because a lot of times when you hit water, it's like you know you 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 start at the bottom, it's a little deeper, but as you work up in the riffle, it starts to get shallower and shallower and shallower, and those fish might be looking up. So just a quick change, and you can you can you know get into a whole lot of uh, of other fish that you might not if you just continue to double nymph. Just the dropper. That's a good tip. Yeah. So you start deeper and you work your way up. And then as you get into shallower water, fish tend to either look up more or maybe they can just see better on the surface. Yeah, it's just, it, that's exactly it. And, and also like as the water really slows down, it's harder to, you know, get the full effect of European nymphing because you need, you need to suspend a fly sometimes because your flies, otherwise they just go to the bottom and sit if there's not enough velocity in the water to move the flies along, which is a lot of the cases in the water in Italy where you'd have, I'd have kind of fast moving pocket water and I could go through double nymphing, but then there might be some really slow water on the side of a fast run that wasn't very deep, but it's, God, there's a fish laying there. And the one particular river I'm thinking of, the Sarka, had uh, had this glacial melt in it and it was kind of a milky hue, so I couldn't see the fish, but I just was like, there's got to be a fish there. But if I dangle a dry dropper in there and just suspend a nymph right in his face and bounce it a couple times, and he might just take it. And sure enough, you know, more often than not, that, that would work. But you know, either taking the dry or the nymph. And, but I just needed that ability to have a fly kind of sit and not, and not get you know down to the bottom and constantly have to be manipulating it. I just wanted to rest. So that's, the, that's the advantage of suspending the nymph versus like you kind of manipulating the nymph off the rod. Right. 
suspending it, you allow the dry fly to actually help work the fly down through the run. Right. Yeah. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah. That was it. one of the rivers I fished in Italy, the Caisse, which looks like cheese. If you're, to, if you're an American, the Caisse, beautiful little stream, um, shallow, broken water, uh, just lots of pockets everywhere. Uh, had to crawl cause it was so crystal clear, but just the dry dropper technique of the extension of the long rod. I was able to get into little pockets and dance the fly around. And, and I'd say I, I got 17 fish in that particular three hour session and half of them came to the dry. And it, you know, without that little, that dry bouncing on the top, they, you know, I would probably missed half of those fish. What was that dry called again? Well, the dry I was using was, um, I was a variation of a Lance Egan pattern called oh, yeah. corn fed caddis, but I'd tie mine a little bit differently than he does. I, I have a little bit of my friend's, uh, poodle in it. So I call it the Safi. Got some real dog in there. It's got some dog. It's got a little poodle in it and the poodle's kind of got a little ginger. So I, tie, it's like a real gingery colored one. So what were on that competition? What were some of the good flies that were, that helped you guys get the gold? You know, really simple stuff. You know, our, our guide, uh, Stefano Sabatelli, great guide. He had all kinds of great suggestions and a lot of his flies really worked well. In fact, one of my best streamer was a pattern that he tied and, uh, I couldn't really describe it to you cause he was using these feathers that were really exotic and it was really cool. So that was my best streamer. Um, we fished in the Czech Republic and the year before at the, at the masters. And we had another great guide there, David, uh, Chlubsky. And I may have, sorry, David, if I mispronounced your last name. Uh, and he had, he had a, a pattern that we picked up there that was really good in Italy too. And it was basically, uh, gosh, you've probably seen or familiar with Devin's blowtorch. Yeah. It's kind of something similar to that. It has a, it has a red tag on the end and it kind of ha- has a body that's kind of like peacock, but it's a dubbing and, and it had a CDC soft tackle and, and, you know, whatever color bead, whether it was pink or silver, that was a great fly. Um, what else worked really well for us? There was a, there was a fly, a couple of flies that, that, um, I brought to the table really worked well. And one of them is, is a, a fly that, you know, uh, I borrowed, stole or, or used because of Pat Weiss and Pat Weiss is just a, a ninja when it comes to fishing and he fishes a, a pheasant tail. that's super simple. Um, I think he calls it the naked pheasant tail and I, that's what I call it anyway. It's just naked. It's just the simplest possible pheasant tail you could tie, you know, no collar, just just a, a very simple tail and a simple and then and then the uh, basically that kind of that same fly but with a CDC collar a little larger and a, and a pink bead um, and then oh I had another fly uh, a, a kind of a dark fly a paradigm a, a dark paradigm with a little bit of orange in it so that that was it you know and I think when when you talk to competitive anglers you'll see that their their fly patterns once they kind of whittle it down they're all pretty simple and they're all just little variations on a theme. And really just playing with weights. Right. I was going to say on the weights, how do you determine, you know, when you're fishing, let's take it to a run, say you're in the middle of that run, trying to get down with a Euro setup. Talk about how you're fishing that, how you're getting down. How do you know you're down deep enough? When are you switching flies? Yeah. So the process I'll go through is, is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start kind of higher up high rather than go low, rather than starting low to go high, if that makes sense. So I don't mind starting a little bit light with the idea that trout are usually looking up. So I'll usually go through maybe with a, with a couple of light beads, maybe a, 
um, a two and a 2.5 or two 2.5s. And then if it feels like, well, okay, I haven't really tapped into the fish yet, maybe. And, you know, fishing a river like the Sarka, you can't really see the depth. You're, you're often kind of just judging it based on the, the feedback you're getting from your flies, right? Which is, is kind of an interesting way to think about it because you could do it without it. You know, you look at water and go, oh, this is that deep. I should probably be using, you know, these beads. But when you can't really see how deep it is, you do have to rely on the feedback from your flies. So if not touching anything, then I would switch out one of the flies. I'd go to a three and have a three and a 3.2. And I would play with the position of that fly. I might put it on the point. I might put it on the dropper. You get different. Your, your flies are going to react differently. And then I would go, you know, back into the run. And now, at what point in the drift am, am I maybe, you know, touching bottom? Now, the problem with the Sarka is usually when you touch bottom, that was the end of your flies. You lost them because it was, there were, the rocks were so <laughs> jagged and, and just, ah, but I, I remember, uh, getting back from the end of a session and the, and the Irishman comes up and he goes, that river eats tungsten. <laughs> so yeah, it was probably more Scottish. Right. Jackson, but it, it was right. I mean, it's just every time your flies touch the bottom, it's like, Oh, I'm snagged. And, and no matter what angle you went, you couldn't get the darn fly off. So just like pop another one, tie another fly off. Wow. So you're trying to keep it above. Yeah. So at that point, it was like really the goal was to not always touch the bottom. Um, but, you know, it, with each little uh, pocket you you encounter, I think I would kind of work through like a little mini progression of like, you know, shallow to deep. And you can also manipulate depth based on how you're presenting your flies. So it's not just changing um, the beads, it's, it's also angle of the line. It's the, you know, allowing the fly to sink a little bit more at the top end of the drift. I mean, so there's all these little subtle nuances of European nymphing that gets a little hyper-technical, but, uh, you can, you can play with depths with, with even light beads. I mean, if you imagine, you know, um, you, if you drop a 2.5 bead and in, into the water and there's no leader attached to it, it goes to the bottom really fast. Yeah. You know, it's like that thing sank. So if you think of that, of trying to like not have any tension on it as it's at the initial part of the drift, uh, just enough so you can feel a touch, but not so much that you're affecting the fall of the flies. You can get really light flies really deep, uh, especially because you're you know, using light tippet as well. Going back to that tippet, just to verify that. So you start how out of a 21 foot tippet, how long is your, your first, your mono piece typically? Um, the first mono is probably going to be about, mm, 12 feet, let's say 12 to 13, somewhere in there. Cause my, my tippet end is going to be about, um, five to six. So I kind of, you know, it depends on, on the depth. So maybe, maybe even longer than 12, it might be more 13 or 14. I, I did, I'm sorry. I didn't have the, the number on my head, but I'm just thinking like, if you piece it together, if you know, you're going to be fishing, about six feet of fluoro, straight fluoro, you know, with a tag, you know, maybe two pieces of fluoro, then, you know, subtract that from your, your 21 and that's what's left. And that's really what you, that's your, your, the, the other end of the, the level line. So pretty long actually. Gotcha. And so on that stream again, you know, going back, I want to take it to your kind of your home water a little bit. You mentioned, um, Silver Creek. So when you're fishing out there, are you doing things a little bit differently, whether it's, you know, some of these other places you're fishing there in your home waters? Yeah, Silver Creek doesn't lend itself well to European nymphing because it's a very slow-moving, very mossy spring creek, crystal clear. Oh, wow. It's really uh, a terrific dry fly fishery, and dry dropper can work very effectively. Uh, and it's mainly if you most of the nymphing there, I would do. I would say probably ninety to ninety-five percent. If I am going to be nymphing, it's using some kind of suspension, either a dry fly or 
clients I'll sometimes yeah. use a bobber. So like a dry dropper, like with a midge or, midge or something? Yeah, dry dropper is really effective. Very small nymphs this time of year because they're eating, you know, it's, it's we're coming at the end of trichos and we're, betas are kind of strong. And so little betas nymphs work. Little midge stuff works really well there. So this is a spring creek, not not a tailwater. No, it's a it's a true blue spring creek. It just pops out of the out of the ground and and uh, beautiful fish, beautiful hatches. Jackson Hole Fly Company has been designing and manufacturing fishing equipment since 1978. They launched jhflyco.com recently and have been selling gear directly online, directly to consumers all over the country. You can take a look at their huge selection of rods, reels, lines, accessories, and fly patterns. Just like Amazon, they'll ship directly to your door, saving you time and money. But unlike Amazon, you'll be supporting a great fly shop and a podcast by simply grabbing a couple flies. Free shipping on all orders are $50, and right now you get 25% off your first order. Head over to jhflyco.com slash swing. What's the big difference between a tailwater versus a spring creek? I know the difference of what they are, but how, like when you look at the river, if you jump on is are they quite a bit different in, as far as hatches and stuff like that? Yeah. You know, it's kind of, it can be misleading because like a river like the wood, which I would call a freestone stream, is also spring fed, but it has more um, rocks and, and it's impacted by snow, melt and runoff. You know, it, it goes through... Uh, a full season of you know high water in the spring down to its base level in the wintertime. And that base level is obviously the spring-fed level. Uh, and the, the Big Wood, which is kind of cool about the, the Big Wood Valley, is the Big Wood goes out and it percolates underground, and then the water from the wood is what pops up and oh, becomes wow. Silver Creek. And uh, Silver Creek is nice and cool. You know, the water's gone down and got very nutrient-rich as it pops up, so it's a, it supports incredible insect life. Um, and you know, the, the thing there is because the hatches are so prolific, the fish be, get a little snobbish about, you know, feeding time is when the hatch is on. And then when the bugs are gone, I'm really not interested in eating. It's going to kind of hang. And, uh, I mean, they're not that they're not catchable during non-hatch time. The, the guides have figured out ways to keep, you know, clients busy throughout the day for the most part, but it is pretty hatch dependent and, you know, very technical, technical fishing. The fish are super spooky. It's crystal clear. So, you know, I think a river like that really prepares you well for some of the crystal clear technical waters around the world. Cause if you can catch fish on Silver Creek, you can pretty much catch fish just about anywhere. So that that's kind of it's nice to have that river and have that experience and and see how fickle those fish can be. Would you be doing the dry dropper similar to how you said you set up your euro nymph setup? You know, I'd probably do more traditional. I, I'd probably have a more traditional rod with uh, with a dry dropper. There's still a very long leader. Uh, there are some places on the on the creek where I might use the euro dry dropper, but. Um, but for the most part, it's it, because of you're having to stand off the fish so far. You're not able to get in as close sometimes, um, and because the water's so slow that you know it, it I don't, it'd just be very difficult. You, you need to get longer drifts there. I mean, that's really the key is is really uh, prolonged drifts. And when I think of dry dropper euro, I'm thinking of really short, precise drifts. Something much suited for a for a. a a freestone river like the Big Wood or the Big Lost, which is tailwater. Gotcha. So on the long, when you're trying to get the long drift in that slow, clear water, how does that uh, dry dropper look different than the Euro one we talked about? Um, 
I'd like to use light lines. I'm still, uh, I, I tend to actually, I fish a longer rod. I fish a 10 foot rod at Silver Creek and I, it's, uh, it's a 10 foot three and I do put a three weight on it, a three weight double taper. So it has a, it's a nice delicate presentation line and I use uh, a hand tied leader and a lot of fluorocarbon at the front of it. So my leaders are still going to be probably about 18 to 20 feet long once they're all said and done. Um, and probably the, the terminal end of that is going to be anywhere from three to six feet of, you know, maybe six X or seven X tippet. Uh, so super long and light. So it just, when that, when you cast the fly out, it just lands like a feather on the water. And, uh, you really, in, in Silver Creek, it's very telling. I mean, you, you can tell you made a mistake because the fish will take off. <laughs> oh, right. You know. So you can see but the like, fish. If, yeah, you can see them typically. And if you're, you're, it's the kind of water where, you know, when the sun's up and your line's on the water, even the finest tippet casts a shadow on the bottom of the stream. So you have to make sure you're, you're not lining the fish. And, and so there's, you know, there's techniques for, for how to approach them from behind where you can, you know, angle it. So you're not going to line the fish. So they see fly first. That's really kind of one of the keys to, to Silver Creek is, is show the fish fly first, whether you're behind them or in front of them. So, yeah, so on silver, so if, if you're coming, let's just say it's, uh, you know, we're in the summertime, you know, September, October, what's your fly blocks looks like when you're going out there this time of year? Oh boy. So this time of year, I would expect, uh, the, the trichos are going to start to wane, uh, but I'd still have a few cause there'll be a few about, uh, we have a very small little betas that'll come and kind of right at the tail end of the trichos and, and, uh, if we get this cold snap, like we just had a little bit of cool weather hit us, uh, it might trigger the uh, mahogany duns. There's going to be a few lingering uh, calabatus around. We'll get some October caddis as well. And uh, so that's kind of th – those are probably the dries I would have. And, and, of course, I'd probably have a few hoppers. I mean, hoppers, beetles, and ants. If the wind blows, uh, those you can – all the rules change. And, you know, you, you put on the big flies and, and shorten up your – Tippet, you know, certainly if the wind is blowing, I'm not going to be fishing six or seven X. I'm going to, I'm going to get a stout tippet on there and expect a, a good hit. Uh, but those fish really do like terrestrials when the wind is blowing. Uh, so that's kind of what I would expect. And you can go out and you can really, you know, you could find a fish to work on, or you could find a group of fish you can work on. And that hatch is going to last for a little while. And that's, that's really, it's really fun, you know, just intense focused fishing on, on a, a specific fish or a group of fish. Is that earlier, later? Well, you know, this time of year, um, again, September into October and into November, the browns will start to really get spawny. Um, but they also, uh, I think pre-spawn, especially the big browns, uh, really start to, you know, they start to feed. They really want to put on some calories as best they can. So that when the hatch is happening, the feeding can be really intense. And, you know, the fish are up and they're feeding on the surface. And it's like, so it's really fun to target fish when, when that's happening. Yeah. Wow. Browns and so browns and rainbows mostly there. Browns and rainbows in this fishery. Yeah. What are some of the other, uh, you may have mentioned, but some of the other uh, river streams in, in your area there you, you uh, fish. we got the big lost, uh, and the big loss is, is one of my favorites because of all the variety that it has. It has, uh, on the upper end of it. So like, uh, as you're coming from Sun Valley, we go up and over trail Creek pass, which is a very narrow, steep, um, dirt road and you drop into the, uh, this basin at the top and it's the, the upper, the headwaters of the big lost. And there's all these little creeks and, you know, the East fork, the West fork, um, the North fork, and they're just like fishing great high altitude, um, freestone streams. They've got cuts road and rainbows and whitefish and, 
um, there's there's been it's an interesting fishery because it actually had no trout originally. The only native fish to the entire Big Lost Basin was the whitefish. So that's the the fish that is catch and release. But all the trout have been introduced over the years, and even grayling and brook trout are in there. They're they're just an incredible variety of fish, and the hatches are pretty good, and and the trout seem to be doing pretty well. They do seem to be spawning and, and there's there's reproduction so there are wild fish in there even though they're not necessarily native so that's that fishery and it's really it's a cool fishery and as you head down you you get back to pavement again and uh, you're heading towards Mackie Reservoir which is the impoundment for all the irrigation in the area there's a spring creek that comes out of that um, valley as well it's called Warm Springs and it flows into the top of the, the reservoir and there's limited access but that can be kind of cool there's a kokanee run that comes up out of the reservoir and then but my favorite is the below the the tailwater below the um the dam and that's the, the in the town of Mackey and it's a it's a really cool fishery lots of nice fish great hatches what stream is that it's called it's just the big lost below Mackey reservoir so they're all the big loss, but this it just has so many different characteristics. I mean, there's the there's spring creeks, little little freestone rivers on the upper end, and then there's the tailwater down below. And then the cool thing about the big loss is it it lives up to its name. It goes out and disappears before it gets to the town of Arco. Um, so it just seeps underground, just just completely goes away. And and it's and all that water goes in and charges the giant aquifer that's underneath Idaho, and and it comes back in the springs down in Hagerman. Uh, and around on the Snake River. So yeah, it's kind of a, and and, and the um, the Bigwood does the same thing. Right. That's it's interesting because you mentioned the water at the start. I would think that, you know, the, that water disappears. You know, all this groundwater is going on. It's kind of interesting, right? Like, what is going on down there? You know, and, and do you see? Right. It sounds like you're seeing effects of like some of that groundwater isn't as prevalent as it used to be. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's well, that's one of the problems for sure. And Sun Valley is also, when you hear Sun Valley, I mean, that just seems like one of those places, right, where all the houses are like, you know, multi-million dollars. It's kind of, right, there's all that going on. What, what is Sun Valley, Valley like? Is it pretty, is it pretty upscale? <laughs> oh, you've never been. No, I, I you know, I, I don't think, I can't remember. That's the thing. I, I'm sure I've been by her, but I don't think, I may not have even been there. Well, you know, it, it is, um, it, it has all that. You know, certainly, there's there's lots of big houses and lots of big green lawns, but it's a very small little community. It, ha- it has a lot of history and mining, um, and it's a great it's a great ski town. You know, it's not quite Aspen, thankfully, uh, and it definitely has you know it has an Idaho flavor to it, but it certainly has you know there's there's some mega rich and wealth there for sure. But uh, it, it's not just the houses and that that's it's drawing on the aquifer. I mean, there's a you know, massive amount of agriculture that happens out in, in the valley below. Um, it goes Ketchum, Haley, Bellevue. Those are the actual three towns. Sun Valley is the resort. There is a Sun Valley town. But, you know, between uh, Bellevue and, and when you get down to where Silver Creek is, you know, they're growing a ton of alfalfa and they're growing a ton of, of barley for Coors beer and they're growing uh, lots of potatoes. And I mean, it's just, it, so there's a ton of, of ag going on and, and they're tapping right into the aquifer. Some are pulling off of the, the irrigation ditches and it's just affecting the groundwater for sure. And a lot of the, the irrigation though, you know, has, can have a positive impact, you know, the flood irrigation, that water, you know, a lot of it returns to the river and we can see the, you know, Silver Creek will go up, you know, it's, and if they stop watering for a little bit, Silver Creek mm-hmm. goes up. So it, you can really see it, um, impact the river. And, and it's just it, the general trend is that Silver Creek is getting lower and lower and lower. It if is. you look at it over the years, it's just losing water, and that's just sad. 
Right. And is the Salmon River also in kind of your neck of the woods? Is that one you fish? Which one? The the Salmon. Yeah, yeah, the Salmon, just up over the hill. Uh, so the Salmon's a cool fishery because it has bull trout. It has, um, it actually has a Salmon run. It has mm. a steelhead run that comes all the way up, you know, 800 miles and eight dams later, they make it all the way up there. Um, so our steelhead season on the upper part of the river is in uh, March and April. It's typically when they make it up to the – and by the time they get there, there's maybe a, a few right. wild fish left, and a lot of the hatchery fish just go sit right at the at the outlet of the hatchery that they that they came from. Uh, but that is just part of the fishery. It also has a really good uh, cutthroat population, good whitefish population. Right. A good the the West Slope Cutties. Yeah. And, um, it's a cool fishery. We, we do use that one. We have, we do floating on it as a guide outfit and, uh, we can wait at this time of year right now, unfortunately, because of the fire highway 75 is closed and we can't get Oh, there's there. a fire out there. Oh God, it's bad. Roy. Yeah. 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 I thought we were going to, I thought we, it seemed like this year we were going <laughs> to miss, right? It seemed like, wow, after last year, we we're going to miss it, but it's starting to just kind of, it's happening. Yeah. We had some thunderstorms that came through in early August and, and some of those fires have really blown up just in the last yeah. week or so in our areas in particular. So we're getting smoky. Yeah. So it's one to keep an eye on because it's really, it's burning up the headwaters of, of the salmon right now. Oh, it is, man. Uh, it'll be interesting. That impact will be on the, 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 the fishery um, for years to come. Is this near, I'm trying to think now, I don't have my map in front of me, but like the middle fork of the salmon, mm-hmm. is that kind of up north? No, that's, that's, uh, I'm sure there's probably fires around that too. I, but you know, there's always been fires there. The, the middle fork is, is much further on down the road from the headwaters is where the, the fire is right now around Lake Alturas and, and the, a little community called Smiley Creek is where, where it is right now. Okay. Well, it sounds like, you know, I was kind of thinking dry dropper and I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, you described it. There's not it's a heck of a lot to that. I mean, if you, you match the hatch, right, figure out what they're taking, throw on a dry. Do you typically, when you put your dry on, are you matching the dropper mm-hmm. to something that's kind of a similar insect or, or is that just more of a, you know, kind of a getting their attention? Um, the, okay. So yeah, my, my typical dry dropper, I'll, I'll, let me explain the one I used in, uh, in, on the Caise there. I happened to notice while I was waiting around to start fishing, I saw some fluttering caddis is what I assumed they were. And they were, they were kind of cream colored. And so I thought, well, I'm, you know, a, the light is really difficult. So I want to have a fly I can see. And I think that's part of the, the, the key is that the, the visual aspect of dry dropper is, is so critical. I have to have a fly I can see. And that, and that, uh, that corn-fed caddis that, that Lance ties is a really easy one to see. So I, I had my variation of that. I, I used a little different colors in it. And um, it was one I knew I could see. So I, I wanted to make sure it was floating really well. So I, you know, I used a little um, floatant, popped it in. It's an all-CDC pattern, but I got, got it floating like a cork. And then uh, below that, I, I had some success during practice on a very small little, you know, size 18 pheasant tail. So I was like, well, that's going to be my, my nip. And I didn't actually do any, um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll do some stomach samples, like I'll, I'll pump a fish stomach. I just didn't do that. And I, I kind of relied on the fact that, you know, this looks like the bugs. I've turned over some rocks. It looks, this looks, and, and I was catching a lot of fish on it. I had that and a few other patterns as a backup, but, but I didn't end up needing any other bugs. So I, I kept those two same flies on the whole time. So it was just a small little pheasant. Oh, wow. And my uh, size 16 CDC caddis. And 
you know, because it really wasn't a, a river where there was much of a hatch. It wasn't a, a match the okay. hatch kind of river. I felt like it was more of a, okay, these fish, if they're here, they're going to be feeding opportunistically. Like, you know, if the opportunity to eat a caddis comes around, they're probably going to go for it. If an opportunity eats this small little, you know, nymph comes around, they might just go for that too. And yeah, and so that's kind of was my approach was, was just, I was really searching likely water. I didn't know, I didn't see fish. Um, I think I may have seen a couple fish rise in different locations that kind of, you know, gave me a clue. It's like, oh, there's going to be a fish there for sure. But I was just fishing just every cover. possible spot. Right. Yeah. And so typically, you know, if, if, you know, if, if I'm going to go out dry dropper on, uh, on the big wood, like right now, I might use, I would use a bug that, that might be around and there's going to be, uh, there, there can be some little, um, spruce moths which this little caddis I used over in Italy would be perfect for. There could be, there could be small caddis. Uh, there might be a, a red quill or a hecuba. It's the last big mayfly of the year, which kind of a, a larger size, like 14 or 12, could imitate really well. Um, a, you know, a parachute pattern would work well for that one, kind of a grayish olive body. So anything that, you know, kind of comes close that I think that you're, you know, like if I'm going to, my main focus with the dry on a dry dropper rig though, is that I have a dry that's going to yeah, float that's for a long key. time that I don't constantly do maintenance on and that I can see it. Right. Um, and that it's, it's in the ballpark of what, you know, fish are going to be eating. And then after that, you know, I just, I'll just put my go-to mm. nymphs on, I'll kind of run through. And usually I'm, I'm staying pretty light on the nymphs, anything, you know, 2.5 is a pretty standard bead size for me when I'm when I'm doing dry dropper. I don't feel like I need anything heavier than that because that 2.5 is going to get the bead down and get the fly down to where it needs to be. It's yeah. going to suspend it pretty quickly. So, <clears throat> so that you know, it, it, it's really a matter of just keeping it simple. I think when I'm doing that, that technique and and the beauty of it is when you're using it on a euro nymphing rod is you have that 10 and a half feet of of rod plus a super light leader that never touches the water. So when I put that fly in the water, it's dry nymph and that's the only thing touching the water. Yeah, that's it. And so I can I can really isolate it in the tiniest of seams. Um, you can you could easily bow and arrow if you're in, if you're fishing in a spot where there's canopy. You know you can cast it longer if you wanted to. You can you can cast it out and and do a long drift with it. I could lay my line down and and you know I can't really mend when I'm when I'm with this light technique line because it just kind of hits the water and tends to sink. It's most effective though doing that kind of short reach reach across and you know always take the time to get in position to make the right cast is what I say. You know don't make a cast into a spot if you're not in the right position. Right. Well, that was, I was going to say that earlier on the casting, that is a challenge, right? With the Euro, especially you're talking about a Euro line. How far are you casting? Like, what is a long cast? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great question. And I would say that probably the, the hardest thing to learn is how to cast a Euro dry dropper rig because it's, because you're taking out some of the weight and you're adding something that's wind resistant. So you really have to be keen on the timing. Yep. You, it, just like regular casting, you get the weight behind you before you bring the weight forward. Um, but if, if somebody were to like kind of be an outside observer going, what is that guy doing? It probably looks like I'm swatting the water. Because <laughs> it's like, because I'll go, I'll go really quick and sharp back with the cast to get the, the weight of the bead behind me. And and the lighter the line, the better, because the, then the line isn't really affecting the cast at all. And then I'm just, I'm really firing that, the bead kind of into the spot. Doo, and that just goes right into the spot where I want it to be. And, it went, and just the more you do it, the more accurate you become. But it's a it's a it's a weird cast. Yeah. Are you speeding up the you know because I was just out doing it here the last week. I haven't done a ton of it, mm -hmm. but I found some success casting just trying to like load up the line speed right, like like kind of hauling it on both ends, and that seemed to help a little bit. Yeah. Is that something you do a lot? 
Yeah, you yeah you can, especially if you have a little more weight on it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's easier to do the little haul if you have uh, you know two tungsten beads on there. Um, but once it becomes super light, you know, if you do the haul, it might not have enough energy to to pull it back out again. Uh, that the, the trick is really in the timing of the cast, and and you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's a mystery. You just got to go out there and yeah, kind of hack do. around it for a little while. But the basic foundation of it is if the weight of the fly isn't behind you, then you can't bring the weight of the fly forward. And I try to work in 180-degree angles. It's like get it behind and then bring it forward. And the cast needs to be it needs to be quick and sharp, and the stop needs to be kind of abrupt with that, you know, that will kick the fly over. And if it doesn't come forward and your leader doesn't straighten out, then you're not quite there yet. Mm. And you got to you know, start – Bring it back again. Let the current help you straighten it out, and then try bringing it. So there's ways, you know, there's little hacks you can do all the time to try to get it. But you know, I, I've been using this technique a lot with my clients, and I find that that uh, you know, with patience, and that they figure it out. And then once they figure it out, it's like it opens up this whole new window of ability to get to fish that are incredibly hard to get with any other technique because you can just you can be so accurate and your drifts can be so precise. And you don't have to mend. And you just, you know, you asked, the the question was, how far can you get it? Well, you're going to find your limit. I usually find that once I've got, um, kind of, you know, if my leader is 22 feet long, you know, add that onto the 10 and a half foot leader and I can get my, my leader and my fly rod, you know, perfectly straight to a spot. So there's, there's your distance. Do the math. It's about as long as your rod and as long as your leader. That's pretty good distance. That's far enough. Yeah. You know, that might even be too far. But once I start getting the line out of the tip of the, my rod, it starts kind of casting like a regular fly rod, you know, a little bit. Because then I've got the weight of the line to help with the turnover. You can do long casts like that. But it's really hard to turn over a level 22-foot leader with about, you know, 10 feet right. of, of Vero line that has no density to it. For- no. And it's not even easier when you take off like a fly and add yeah. a dry fly. So it's better to, to stay short. Yeah. Stay short. I, I think when I'm teaching people to do this for the first time, it really is we're casting mostly maybe about the length of your rod. So we're looking at like 10 and a half to 15 feet. That's how much line I'll have out the tip. And if that, if you can get that with the angle of your rod and extending your rod out, that's far enough. Let's get closer to the fish. Let's, let's, uh, let's not try to cast farther. Because the idea is to, is to be right there when that fish eats so the hook set is instantaneous. Good. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit just because I think the dry dropper, um, it's effective and it's popular. But you, if you're out there fishing, again, back to your home waters out there, you're kind of doing a little of both. You're, you're doing that yep. and even maybe some streamers. Are you mixing in that down there in your home? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, typically when I head out to the river, I'll carry two rods. I got my dry rod and I've got my Euro rod. And I'm going to be probably single dry with the dry and I'll be double nymph, dry dropper and streamer fishing with my Euro rod. Yeah. With the Euro rod, with the 10 and a half footer. Yep. So that thing can do a lot of, you can fish that all around with everything. It can do it. It's an amazing tool. And and I think once people like realize all the things that it can do for you, it just becomes, it becomes a rod that just is like, it's always going to be in my quiver. That's right. What is the disadvantage of the, it seems like the 10 and a half foot, that really light tip, the uh, Euro rod seems to be a great rod. Like, why would it not be a good rod for anything? What would be the bad, you know? Uh, I, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't probably put a, a regular fly line on it and try to cast it. That wouldn't be good. You wouldn't put a, like a light. 
No, I think it's really designed. It's really designed that the the softness of the tip is really designed to cast super light rigs. And as soon as you you add the the weight of a of a traditional fly line to that tip, that tip's going to feel really sloppy to you. Mm. Even if it's a super light, like a, a you know whatever two weight normal line one weight. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a good point because I do use my 10.3 and my 10.2 in that same series, the Shadow X. I'll put a double taper 2 or a double taper 3 rod. And that's what I'm thinking about, like the line, because the dry, when you have a dry fly set up, say you're just fishing dries, because how do you cast that with a Euro rod level line, just dry fly? Is that pretty easy? Oh, a single dry? No. No, that's what I mean. I, I tried, <laughs> I was doing a little bit of it with the Euro on it was a little bit more challenging. No, no, no. No, it's it's doable, but it's like an exercise in, in uh, existentialism. So yeah. you want to go ahead and it's like, if I'm going to fish a single dry, I'm going to go get the tool that's made for that. You know, use the using the right tool is is key. Gotcha. Uh, this, so this would be the wrong tool. I mean, in a pinch, sure, I'd do it. Uh, if I left my dry fly rod behind and I and I had to do it, but it's it's not a fun cast. You know, and, and part of fishing is 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 casting. I mean. It, get a lot of joy out of casting <laughs> exactly we joke about that that's the thing with the euro because i we've said that before some people joke about like okay what makes it fly fishing right you're casting right. a fly line right some people say right but euro niffing is kind of unique because you are it is a fly line it's a level line but it's really a lot different it's kind of it's on the verge of it maybe is. right it is it's different and i, I think but it's also some of the casting stuff, I mean, if you're a good fly caster, you can be a good Euro fly caster as well. I think there's a lot of right. transfer that goes back and forth. The, it, it is different just in, in kind of the timing and the application of power. And it's still a lot of the same foundational skills are still the same. So I still find um, the joy in the cast, you know, especially in the the kind of the precise pinpoint casting that you can do with a Euro that you can't always do is as effectively with a regular rod just because of the, the weight of the line it just you're laying line down versus i'm able to just fish the flies and but you know the the basic you're, you're casting weight either way you know you're casting a little tungsten bead or you're casting a, a weighted fly line and a, and, a, and a weightless fly so they i find joy in both that's and, awesome <laughs> so but i like being able to go back and forth and the, and, I, and i always encourage especially a lot of the, the young anglers who are coming up and all they learn is is yeah. your this is the that's old right. me. it's like come on it's just the same thing it's like you can't just learn to snowboard you have to be able to ski too oh really is that it you have to do you have to be able to do both up there <laughs> you gotta be able to do oh, both man. Like, so you know rather than just learning on a euro rod you got to be able to cast a fly line you know if you really if you look at the guys who are the best anglers on the team every one of those guys is an exceptional caster as well. And you run into a major roadblock. I, I know a lot of guys who are awesome European nymphers, but they can't cast. And you put them in a boat in, a, in a, like a Stillwater situation, or you put them on Silver Creek, and it's like, okay, we got this really technical casting situation, and their fishing falls apart. They're kind oh, of wow. one-dimensional. So you don't want to, you know, I always encourage people to like, yeah, learn your own nymphing, but it's not the end-all be-all. You got to be well-rounded. <laughs> yeah. Well, and dry flies are great. Dry flies are still, you know, it still seems like it is the fly fishing, right? It's that, I don't know. I mean, you don't have things challenging, yeah. but matching the hatch, getting the right flies, presentation. Do you still feel like dry fly is still the most challenging type of fishing to do out there, to really nail, to learn perfectly? Good question. I think, um, God, it, it's probably for me, I, I will say from like a guiding perspective, it's the most difficult to teach. Because of the, like on, on Silver Creek, the precision, 
that is required to get a precise drift with a size 22 or 24, or, you know, trico or betas with these little microcurrents that you're dealing with. And that it, oh, just all the things about it, I mean, it is, it really is like, it just takes so much time. But streamers is too, you know, that's the cool thing about Flyfish because you can dig into streamers and be like, well, yeah. tell you what, not everybody's Kelly Gallup with his, you know, like the, all that's all that knowledge, right? right? The get going deep. I mean, you can go as deep yeah. as you want, but I always look for me, I think dry fly fishing still for me is that one that is, uh, you know, I haven't even come close to mastering. I probably never will, right? It's just, a ch- it's a challenge, but no, this has been good, Brett. I, I'll, I'll let you get out of here. Um, it's, cool. it's been awesome. I, we've kind of jumped around all over the place, which has been fun. And, and I, I love, yeah. you know, congratulations on the goal. That's amazing. Um, Thank you. Thank so you. Spain, right? That's the next big thing. Team USA, you, you got Spain and then what's the next event after that? Um, well, I think our next event is probably, well, yeah, we're just looking at Spain. Uh, we've got, there'll be another world championship next year, probably in September. There's another masters in September. I think uh, the adults go to Slovakia and I think the masters go to British Columbia. Uh, and you know, of course I, I forgot to even mention, there's now a ladies division too, and I'm not sure where the ladies are going, but they've just had their first ever competition in Norway. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just talked to, uh, I just talked to Tess, uh, why again? Oh, cool. Right. Great. Great. Yeah. She shared her story. It was a really awesome story about that. And she, um, so I love yeah. it. I mean, d- definitely the fact that there's a women's team, like for sure, finally, is what I'll say. That it seems like it's always a, sh- a struggle. But uh, okay, well, good. I will, uh, like you said, Silver Creek Outfitters yeah. is where we'll send people to connect with yes. you. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch and sure. hopefully uh, good luck next year. Uh, and hopefully you guys can bring back another gold. That's what I'm hoping for. So yeah, you can follow us on Instagram. And I know that people probably won't get this this until after we're back, but go to Instagram and see how we did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I will. And I'll put, I'll put some links out to Team USA, your stuff. All right, great. Okay, Brett. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you, Dave. Take care. So there it is. If you want to check out everything we have going here, wetflyswing.com slash 368. 368 will get you some of the links and notes and everything else we have that we talked about on this podcast episode. Reminder, if you've been loving the show, a real great way to support this show is to leave a rating and review. You can do that right now. We'd appreciate it if we've been uh, providing some value. A five-star review would be super appreciated if you get a chance. Quick listener shout-out, Dan Turner uh, expressed some interest in the Steelhead School recently. Um, Right now, if you are interested in the Steelhead School, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash steelheadschool. And that'll give you a chance. You can enter your name and, uh, and we'll follow up with you if you're interested in picking up one of these last remaining slots for the Steelhead School. We'd love to hear from you. If you get a chance, you can reach out to me anytime, Dave at whipflyswing.com. If you have questions, ideas for a show topic, uh, anything under the sun. All right. I am hopeful that we are going to get some sun this week on our fishing trip. Um, we are heading out. We are heading out, out and up north, and we are going to be on the river in a remote canyon, and it's going to be good. We just need a little bit of break in the weather, so keep the fingers crossed on that one. Okay, we're going to get this one rolling, and if you want to connect with me, if you want to get on the water on one of these upcoming trips, maybe you have a trip idea you want to throw out to me, check in with me right now, and uh, and I'll follow up with you, Dave at wetflyswing.com. I am going to let you get out of here, and I just want to say, I hope you're having a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening, wherever you are in the world. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.